Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm very excited. I've got Charlie on board with me today. Charlie, who have we got? Oh, well, we've got a good one today. We've got Cat Hill. She's a senior lecturer at uh, Birkbeck College in early modern history. And she's just as likely to be found walking in nature, taking stunning photos, which you can see on her Twitter feed, as she is to be buried in books, researching the rich history of the Mennonites. She's very kindly agreed to come and talk to us about these fascinating people today. So hello, Kat. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Hi. Hi, and thanks for having me on and uh, giving me a chance to talk about, uh, yeah, the interesting Mennonites. As you've all heard, um, Kat teaches at Birkbeck. I have not, I promise I've not been raiding the Birkbeck staff department again. (laughs) She's got a hit list. (laughs) She's coming for you all. (laughs) See, we've got Kat on, now we're going to have Brody on. So Brody, if you are listening, you are next on my list. But this is really exciting. The reason is, is that I, when I got in contact with you, I was like, Mennonites, what are, I contacted Alex, I said, Alex, what are Mennonites? We had to Google this because <laughs> we had no idea where we were going with this. Something, it's, it's historical, it's early modern. I'm like, what, what is this? So we're actually going to learn something and I'm really excited to learn something. And it's not because we're going to be talking about uh, a very interesting country that I have an association with. <laughs> Can't Poland. what that would be. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's start with this. First of all, can you tell us what Mennonites are for those of us who are completely clueless and where did they come from? Sure. Uh, uh, it's not an unnatural reaction had to say for people to say, what, what are Mennonites? What are you, what are you working on? Um, so when I tell people what I'm working on, I normally say, well, you know, the Amish in America, they're a bit like them. And there are connections between the, the two groups because Mennonites come from the early days of the European Reformation. So they spring out of radical movements that come out of the Protestant Reformation, um, a group known as the Anabaptists, who, as the name suggests, have very distinct ideas about baptism. They believe in um, adult baptism, not infant baptism. And Mennonites are one branch of this um, movement. And they're named after a guy called Menno Simons, who's the leader in the Netherlands, um, and they kind of spread from there and develop into this into a coherent movement, which has lasted right up to the present day um, and kind of continuing those beliefs about um, elective mem- membership of the church, um, being baptised as an adult, um, kind of quite strict ideas about discipline and morality. Um, but they go right back to the 1520s. So a very long history. Gosh. So we were going to talk specifically 
about the Mennonites and how they came to settle in Poland and Prussia. Mm. Were they able to have any kind of life there? Was it was it harder for them to be in, in the Netherlands and that, that region of the world? Was it easier for them in Poland and, and Prussia? Um, yeah, it's an interesting um, way to think about whether it's kind of easier or harder. I mean, I think one of the, the distinctive features of like Mennonite life is because they, they do have very distinctive ideas about um, morality and religion, um, they want to try and live separately and kind of set up their own communities. And that's not always possible. That's one of the reasons they go, they go to, um, um, to to Poland, what is modern day Poland, what was then um, kind of West Prussia. Um, and they're in the Netherlands. Um, they're sometimes tolerated, sometimes um, they're, they're not. In the 16th century, lots of um, Anabaptists, the kind of origin group of the Mennonites, are persecuted. But in uh, Poland, they are able to kind of negotiate agreements where they're able to live out the way their lives the way that they want. Um, so because it's kind of a patchwork of territories, um, you've got lots of different lords. The city of uh, what's then Danzig, Dansk now, um, is um, quite independent. And so the Mennonites are allowed to kind of set up um, their communities around there. And they also bring the added advantage. They're pretty good um, farmers and they're very good at draining the land and making it <laughs> terrible land. So they have a use as well. Um, so they are able to set up these kind of separate congregations there um, in a way that they haven't always been able to um, in other, other bits of, of Europe. I've got a question just to throw in here. Um, were they actually allowed to buy property at the time? No, they're not allowed to buy property uh, within, well, not within the city walls of, 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 um, of Danzig, which is kind of this, so this strange position of where they're allowed to settle on the outskirts, but they're not allowed to buy property within the walls, and they're not allowed to be citizens of the city. Um, so there's this kind of like halfway house of, of, of tolerating and this kind of recognition that they're different. Um, but that they're allowed to settle and farm um, the land. So that, that tends to be quite common um, in their history. Um, and it's not until kind of the, the into the 19th century that they're actually allowed to become like, full citizens of the city. I love that you say that they were also, they were also draining, draining the land. Yeah. Being defends myself. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's very useful technology that we, uh, that we, yeah. we uh, we nicked. <laughs> now there were there were two factions of Mennonites, right? Are there are there still two factions to this day? The Flemish and the Frisian. Um, so yeah, in the exactly in the seventeenth eighteenth century, they split into uh, there were two groups in in Prussia, Flemish and Frisian, and they disagree not really over kind of religious matters, but about how to live their lives. So kind of questions of discipline how strict the codes of morality should be, whether you ban people for certain things from the community, um, you know, dress, that type of thing. And uh, the names come from places within um, um, the Netherlands. Um, but the Mennonites, uh, those, those divisions do continue for quite, um, quite a while. And Mennonites have many divisions now. So I would say it's not that those two divisions have, have um, kind of continue to the present day, but there are lots of different Mennonite communities now who disagree over all sorts of things. And they're often splitting over these questions of how strict to be over, um, over life and how you live your life. So for example, if you go to a kind of modern day 
North and South America. In North America, you've got pretty uh, open liberal Mennonites who you would look at and they, you know, you wouldn't know they're Mennonite to look at. You go down to South America today and in places like um, Mexico, Paraguay, Belize, you have very traditional Old, what are called old order Mennonites who wear traditional dress and they disagree with the some of the kind of moral codes. So this division is not something new um, and it, you, you can see it right back in the 18th century with these Flemish and Frisian divisions. Gosh. So going back to to the split, you know, from from the Church of Rome and, you know, and the Reformation and all of these, these um, different sects coming up from you know out of out of christianity with the mennonites what did their mass look like how did it differ from from what they were trying to to avoid they um so they like most uh forms of protestantism i mean there's all kind of varieties of how far this goes they don't believe uh that the um the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ um, in any way they say it's a simple remembrance it's you know you're doing it to remember the last supper and remember Christ's promise of sacrifice so for them you don't need to hold the high ritual that you would have in the Catholic Church you're, the priest is not um, you know affecting a, a kind of transformation that he's not re-performing the sacrifice on the altar um, and partly because of their belief in that and partly through necessity, because especially in um, early days, you know, Mennonites are kind of doing things, you know, secretively or, si- or simply because they're, they're having to, to live their lives in particular ways. The, sim- the ceremony tends to be very simple and kind of imitates the Last Supper so that you have, you know, simple bread, simple, normally wine, simple wine, um, though there are some communities that use milk as well, uh, rather than wine. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> um, and dip the bread in the milk. Um, but they, it's it's arranged as a kind of a simple meal um, where you know people sit down and eat together, and they, they remember the the discipleship and and Christ and Christ sacrifice. So it would look very very different to imagine how we would imagine a Catholic mass with its ritual and the senses, you know, senses and the smell and all all, all of that. And they would sing psalms and they would. Um, there would be a long sermon, but it'd be a very simple um, ceremony, um, stripped of all that kind of ritual significance that you would get in the Catholic Church. So this really differed from you know, the the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and all of the the rules that were being imposed in the I'm thinking the 17th century because you know I can't can't not go there. Yeah, exactly. It does look very different from kind of high forms of Protestantism as well, and would look very different from a, a, a Lutheran um, um, Eucharistic you know, communion, um, which, although, you know, there's not a belief in the same kind of transformation uh, of, of the body into the body and blood, that there is, a, you know, there's a ritual um, kind of richness to, the, to those ceremonies in you know, the Anglican church or the high Lutheran church, you would have the altar, you have a priest who is you know, distinct and different. Um, whereas here there's much more an emphasis on the kind of bond of fellowship between mm. fellow believers and the simplicity and kind of recreating an apostolic uh, kind of community. And, and I think, you, you know, you, you see that quite a lot in Mennonite ritual. I'm really curious to know, did these two fractions actually get along? Could they work together or was there any sort of friction between them? 
there is quite a bit of friction um, between the Flemish and the, the Frisian, um, and uh, there's quite they have they have distinct con congregations for one thing. So if you go to if you went to seventeenth you know, century Danzig, you would have different churches. You'd have a kind of a Flemish church and a Frisian church, and they would have their own ceremonies they would they perform ceremonies quite slightly differently um they have different rules about discipline and so they it's not generally um advised that you marry across the Flemish and the Frisian communities in the 17th century though that does happen um there are voices for kind of unity um who say well this is you know we're all Mennonites we should all kind of um get along um but there is quite a bit of friction between these different communities um and going across to another one could be seen as kind of a, a betrayal of your community and you could be expelled for from, you know, the, the Frisians have a slightly kind of harsher discipline code um, and you could be expelled from that and if you were following morals, which would be acceptable in a Flemish community. So, um, yeah, it, it does cause quite a bit of tension and disagreement in families and communities do split over it. So if I was to go from... Um from one church to another if I was to to go and visit the Flemish church one day and then to visit the Frisian what differences would I see in in the in the way that I was um experiencing the religion in those two churches so as I said Flemish tend to be uh slightly um less kind of strict on some of the questions of of of, of discipline I mean you might It'd be hard to see perhaps kind of at the first glance a visual visual uh, difference. Um, there'd be very similar ways in which these communities live their, their lives. Um, but if you were to attend different um, ceremonies, then you would see um, the difference um, that the, um, the way in which they perform the Lord's Supper, for example, the, the, the communion is different in the Flemish and Frisian. It's um, the Frisian ones um, you know, who... who think about using milk um the Flemish do it slightly differently um there'd be a different order they would read different passages so I think it, it kind of it's at the level of that that detail um, um that you would see the the differences between communities and as I say there are many other splits as well there are lots of splits between the Dutch and Mennonites too um over over what they they can do um so to an outsider they might look quite quite similar and of course there are many more similarities probably between them than there are you know um, similarities with other uh, religious groups um, but you, if you were kind of to spend time with them and attend the rituals there are quite distinct differences. You mentioned the Catholics having their own rituals in church we all know you know you go to church mm -hmm. you sit down you say a prayer the priest does this and etc etc I'm mm -hmm. proving to not be a very good Catholic right now because I don't even know how we <laughs> operate uh, please do not take notice of my bad Catholicism. Um, You're out. <laughs> I'll just get out of the Polish community too no anyway moving on so ritual is important in the Mennonite communities they've got their own rituals and mm -hmm. baptism is one such important ritual so mm -hmm. can you tell us why is it so important to them and what do we know um and what would it have looked like um so yeah baptism is 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 crucial and that goes right back to the early beliefs of that this is the kind of the core of these communities of these um these congregations because they make this really dramatic decision to reject infant baptism in the 16th century it's why they're called anabaptists which literally means rebaptizers um, and that might not look very radical to us it might look okay well that kind of makes sense because children can't 
you know, speak for themselves and they can't confess their own faith. But in the 16th century, that is incredibly radical because you believe that children are, you know, have, have the taint of original sin when they're born. What happens to an unbaptized child? So it, baptism is really crucial for Mennonites because it expresses this different way of thinking about faith, that when you come to an age of what they call kind of reason or understanding, you make a, um, a kind of committed um, promise to join the church and to become part of the church. I mean, obviously, in practice, if you're born into a Mennonite community as a, as a little child, you're going to become a Mennonite probably. But still there's this importance of actually speaking the promise of becoming part of the community yourself. Again, I mean, the ritual would have been pretty simple. It's sometimes quite hard to get details on, on exactly how things happen. The, the documents that we have often are fairly limited. We have um, you know, descriptions of Mennonites in the kind of 17th, 18th century. We have, um, you know, letters and some, and church books, but the, we don't have things like, you know, uh, someone who's being baptized giving us a really nice description of what it was like and what and what they felt like but there's this it would would have been a profession of um commitment to the faith with a series of questions asked by the preacher to the baptisms those who are to be baptized um kind of testing them or or, or checking that they know what they're doing that they they know their their faith and it's Actually, often it, it seems to have been ima imagined a little bit like um, we would think of as a marriage ceremony today. So there's this in this one account of um, the baptism ritual, there's this lovely moment which is described where all those who have been baptized are have, have answered their questions. There's been a sermon um, and then the preacher says, does anyone here have any objection to these people being baptized into this church? A little bit like, you know, the. You know, if anyone wants to speak now, you know, speak now, forever hold your peace. It's that. And everyone clenches. Exactly. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it must have been a kind of a similar moment because this is a really important kind of rite of passage. You know, it's a, it's a transformation from being a kind of half member of the church into a full member of the congregation. Um, and with that, so you, you have this idea of the kind of community accepting these individuals um they don't immerse fully um there is water used generally water kind of either drawn as a uh, in the shape of a cross or drops of water not full immersion um, um in the 18th century um that does change later with some communities but again a very simple ritual which is about that confession of faith i mean that's that's really very modern that we're, that we're talking about this kind of you know idea of of religious consent but i just want to be dark for a minute because we are talking about the 16th and 17th century mm -hmm. even into the 18th mm -hmm. where child mortality is much higher than it is now what what was the the logic or the provision for that because you know you say you're born with original sin is it just sorry bad luck it's, it's that's one of the, one of the most interesting questions I found in my research. It's actually what drove me to kind of look at the Anabaptists originally, because I was like, this, this, this isn't, as you say, it looks like a kind of quite, you know, rational decision or easy decision, but it's, it, it, it's an, actually a very profound emotional shift in saying, actually, we're going to reject infant baptism. And I think there's no easy answer um, to that. I mean, there are a variety of kind of accommodations, I would say, or changes that Anabaptist and then Mennonite communities make to kind of bridge that gap. I mean, I, I think certainly by the time you get to kind of 17th, 18th century Mennonites, there's a sense in which um, 
you're being born into a quite kind of separate congregation. And even though you have not yet been baptized um, as a child of Mennonite parents, you are part of that community. Um, and when we, you, when you get to the point where Mennonites have their own cemeteries, those children are buried in those cemeteries. Um, on the question of original sin, um, and this again goes right back to kind of 16th century understandings of, uh, of this with um, these radical religious movements, they do, they, they come to the, to the explanation that although children may be born with some original taint of sin, that sin can't um, have any effect until they are at an age of reason. So until uh, they have, um, it's called Vernunft, um, is the German word. Love it. Yeah, yeah exactly. So if you're, if you're Vernunftig, if you have the, the ability to reason, then you can make a decision to sin or to be good. And it's only at that point that that sin becomes damning. And at that point, you baptise. It's not clear the age. So the ages vary quite a lot. That's um, what I was going to ask. What what age do we vrumpf? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you see it. Uh, you know, you see kind of what we would still obviously consider children, perhaps more of an age of the kind of age of Holy Communion um, being baptized um, in the 16th century. But by by the 17th, 18th century, really, most Mennonites are not being baptized till late teens, early 20s, sometimes even in later. So I think by that point, there's this accommodation of, of both a, a different understanding of how sin operates and that children who aren't do die aren't going to end up in hell or limbo or whichever version of, of, of kind of the, the damned part of the afterlife you, <laughs> you, you, you work off. But also that, um, as I say, that they are part of the community by virtue of kind of growing up in a Mennonite congregation. Um, so there are ways around that, that question. I think it's very interesting how the, it's, it's part of the urgency about those questions, which drives communities to, to kind of form, Form congregations in the way they do but it's, it's a really interesting question about what parents feel if, if a child dies and it's two months old in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie's brought up a good point. I, I really like that. But I'm curious about what if I was an external person, I don't know, Joe Bloggs from down the road, <laughs> and I've fallen in love with a girl who was a Mennonite or, or, or you know, could I join the community? Is there a possibility for me to be baptised? And was it is it a common um, occurrence? Really good question. And yes, yes, you could. Um, and it does happen that that um, people baptise into Mennonite communities. Um, and although Mennonites are supposed to be quite separate, there you know obviously you can't live lives completely separately. So it does happen that there is marriage into Mennonites and also the other way you know which is what Mennonites don't want is that you know someone goes off to a Lutheran sermon and they end up in the Lutheran church um it isn't particularly common um for a couple of reasons one is that um there are very strong bonds between Mennonite congregations and families which operate across very large distances so although uh, Mennonites go from the Netherlands to to Poland um they're always traveling back and forth. Um, you might well be a Mennonite in Danzig and you marry someone in Amsterdam or Harlem and you, you know, go back and you, you find the, 
the wife or the husband there and, and, and there are strong connections. So there's a very strong interconnection between these communities um, and even between particular families within um, communities. And I think the other reason why you, you, you don't see it that often is because uh, Mennonites are not really allowed to um, go out and evangelise and also they don't really want to in the same way that other churches are. They, they, they never, not until the 19th, 20th century, they, they're, they're never really a mission church. So they don't go out and try and convert in in the same way that you might see um, you know, Jesuits doing um, or you might see the Moravian Brethren who are kind of a parallel Protestant missionising movement. So it does happen and it, you do see it in the records, um, but it's not hugely common. But 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 intermarriage, especially towards the 18th century, uh, 19th century, is something which is becoming, becoming more common, um, I would say. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, it's it's incredible to hear how how the commu- community managed to find each other across geographic distances. But you know, when we don't have the the advantages we have now, like a, you know, a Twitter group or yeah. a, a way to way to find people. Um, the other side of of this is not not people joining the community and all of that lovely stuff. Um, proving your faith was was very important to the Mennonites as well wasn't it and and I'm quite interested in hearing how people were were punished if they didn't fall into line or were they were they kicked out were were people shunned and excluded from their community yeah exactly that that's uh that is that does happen and I think um the, the power if you like a counterpoint to baptism which is this this ritual of acceptance is the power of the community to exercise what they call the ban um to excommunicate to to exclude people who don't um fit within the kind of the rules of the morality of morality in the community um and um it tends to be the case that i mean full full ban full excommunication does happen gone out exactly gone out you're expelled and that's i don't want to see you anymore don't want to see you you're expelled you're excommunicated you are not part of the church what tends to happen more often is a realization that 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 is a little extreme and also you know that the reality of of day-to-day life people do commit misdemeanors you know or, or they don't they don't fit within the perfect model of, of what your your moral codes demand so that can be from you know maybe drinking to wearing the wrong type of clothes to sexual misdemeanors um so what more often happens uh, as, a, as a kind of you know, 
daily practice or, or, or normal practices to exercise what they were called the little ban. Oh. That's um, shunning people for a while. So it's a kind of a temporary exclusion. Um, and and it, I mean, I'm sure that would have been pretty traumatic in itself, you know, kind of being the idea that you don't talk, talk to people or you are kind of ostracized from the community for a while. You, would, you know, you couldn't receive communion or, or, or take part of rituals until the point at which um, you make a, a kind of an apology and expression of guilt and regret in front of the, um, the elders in the community. And so that's a process where you can you exercise discipline and you also um, but you also you, you don't expel people all the time. But full expulsions do happen. Um, and. It is part of kind of the way in which it's a, it's a really important part of the way in which um, communities try and uh, kind of keep this sense of otherness, this sense of difference, this sense of um, separation. Um, there are lots of disagreements. Again, that that's the how harshly you apply the ban is one of the things which all these different branches disagree about. Um, and obviously it's quite hard to kind of keep a check on what everyone's doing in different places. So for example, the, the Danzig Mennonites are kind of the center of, of West Prussian Mennonite life. And they have to discipline a deacon who's in a smaller community towards the East in someone called Kunisberg, because he's wearing this Japanese gown with otter fur, which they're like, no, 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 that's not, oh, no, that's no. not Mennonite. So you know, <laughs> that's, that's horrible in itself. <laughs> I mean, who'd want to wear that anyway? Well, yeah, well, I kind of want to see this gown. I want to see what it, what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the otters alone. <laughs> but there was there was sort of the chance to repent and to be forgiven. Yeah, normally, uh, unless unless it's something really bad. I mean, things, um, some particular crimes. Um, you see it for things like rape, um, or you know, I mean, it's not. Yeah, it, it, we read it is it is rape. It's not um, described necessarily as that in the the records exactly. Um, or violent crimes you could be excommunicated fully um, and it does happen but it's it's rarer than much rarer than using the, the little ban sticking oh, with uh, sticking with these forms of rituals because mm. you know how catholics like a ritual yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not a very good one so anyway um death and grief i mean mm. i'm gonna i'm gonna throw in a personal experience here actually i um I recently went to a funeral mm. in Poland mm. and most of my funerals have been in England and they're both Catholic, completely mm. both Catholic, but they had totally, totally different rituals. Mm. I mean, so you even find it within Catholicism, but how would Mennonites deal with death and what were their funeral rituals that followed a death within the community? And death is, again, it's one of those things which plays a a really interesting role in Mennonite communities um, because there's this, um, I mean, if you go back to kind of say the 16th century, like dying a good death is really important because martyrs are really important to Mennonites. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's not, that's not exactly a funerary ritual, but it's a death ritual, which is really important because Mennonites and Anabaptists are, are persecuted in the 16th century. Um, the idea of dying the good martyr's death is something which, which, uh, kind of comes up quite a lot so you, you know persecuted by Lutherans and Catholics alike um, and going to your death accepting of your fate and um, you know these stories are immortalized in uh, martyrological collections the martyr's mirror is the most kind of famous of those which which Mennonites still use today um, and is, is really important so there's I think there's this going on in the background with death I mean in terms of but of course 
you know, by the, you, you can't, not everyone can live a die a martyr's death because that doesn't really bode well for the future of the community if everyone is a martyr. So it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's not, not something which you can sustain as a practice. But it, it is, I think, this idea of, um, of being accepting of fate and, 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 and of suffering is important. With kind of more normal deaths, if you like, you know, kind of obviously just death in the community. Again, it, it can be hard to kind of pin down um, detail. Um, and it's, but certainly until the kind of 17th, early 18th century, when communities don't necessarily have big church buildings or their own church buildings themselves, and they, they are um, worshipping in, in barns and things, they're often actually having to share um, space with Lutherans and Catholics. So although they have their own ritual, their own um, um, funerary ritual, where again, there'll be, be simple, simple dress, um, a sermon said, singing of psalms, um, they'll actually have to use burial space in a Catholic, probably a Catholic ceremony in, in, in West Prussia, possibly a Lutheran one, because they don't have their own. That does change in the 18th century because they start to build their own churches and their own cemeteries. And I think that's a really interesting shift, actually, when they are able to separate themselves in death as, as well as in life. Um, but it, again, be, it'd be pretty simple no no frills the emphasis on on um living you know having lived a good life being part of the community even in death um and um then kind of reflecting that um in the in the sermons which are uh, said and um, psalms which are sung that's really nice and it you know can't have been can't have been easy because they were they were living and dealing with quite a lot of plague times i can't imagine what that might have been like yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the Danza community is hit by the kind of the last, what looks like the last, last wave of Great Plague in, in Europe in kind of 1709, um, what it goes on on longer across Europe. But yeah, that that that's really devastating um, for kind of Prussia as a whole. Um, and I think it's something like, I mean, it's about half of the city in, in Danzig die, not just Mennonites, of course. Um, and at those moments of kind of extreme, um, you know, extreme trauma crisis, I mean, as we know now, it, 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 it kind of affects the way that you interact with um, questions of mortality and, um, and, and death. Um, and there's some really interesting, beautiful kind of case study of a, of a father who loses his wife, he loses his son, and he writes this letter to his relatives in um, Altona um, and he's describing how he his son thinks he sees the ghost of his mother and he has dreams where he imagines them all happy in the afterlife and it looks pretty catholic and it's kind of imagining of the afterlife but you can I think you can see something there of the trauma of an event where lots of people have died and, and just hoping wishing to be reunited even in death and so I think there's some really interesting ways in which you can kind of think about how death changes in meaning as well at times of, of, of trauma and crisis. Gosh, that, that sort of coping instinct mm. that, um, that, that we seem to have. How did the Mennonites cope with the world changing on mm. them? Um, were, they, were they allowed contact with anyone outside their community or were they insular? Um, they, they try to be quite separate, but the reality is, of course, you know you can't be completely separate that's not really the way that that, that 
life functions um and they you know because they're good farmers because they they are very involved in the lace trade that's one thing they do a lot in um danzig they are interacting with communities but they do try and keep, keep quite separate um they're not supposed to have contact in the sense that intermarriage is 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 definitely frowned upon um and um sometimes they're allowed if, if there's no church anywhere else they're sometimes allowed to go to lutheran services but that is like they're a bit worried about that because like, well if they go to it and then they start converting into it so there's a there's a pragmatism about kind of the the amount of contact um because you, you simply can't live your lives completely separately um but at the same time trying to keep these bands of community and it it's often when those boundaries are threatened that Mennonites decide to move um, and that they migrate. So there are all sorts of um, agreements, as I said, that they have um, about um, toleration for their beliefs. Um, one of the key things about Mennonites is they don't swear oaths, which is a fundamental part of early modern mm. society. Yeah. Um, if you, exactly. If you think about guilds or oaths of loyalty to the city or and increasingly into the, the era of nationalism, oaths to the nation, Mennonites won't swear oaths. They don't believe in um, military service. Um, though there are accommodations to that as well but they they don't they don't want to fight in the military so in the 18th century by the later 18th century as prussia is under frederick the great is becoming you know the prussian state where it's a military state people are expected to kind of contribute um to that to fight in those armies that the the way of life that men might have been granted is coming under pressure and at that point that's when many of them decide to migrate um, to what's modern day Ukraine, but was then part of the greater Russian empire, um, where they think, okay, well, we can renegotiate living our lives in the way that we want to with toleration for our beliefs and our ways of, 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 of conducting our lives. So they, they're, they're always treading this line between uh, living within a place and also kind of living outside it um, in this really interesting way. So sticking to this whole idea of, of migration, because they, they're not just in Poland, they're not just in Prussia, Russia and mm -hmm. the Netherlands. Uh, I'm making a list, nice little list here. Where else can you find Mennonite communities? Do any of them still exist in these places now? And can we find any traces of them or any buildings or anything that stands in these areas? Um, yeah, Mennonites migrate a lot, <laughs> so Mennonites are pretty much everywhere um, <laughs> in the current, you know, current day. I mean, that's a bit of an over-exaggeration, but it, there are they are a truly kind of global church um, now, and so the general pattern of migration is, as I said, Netherlands to Poland to Ukraine, Russia. Many then go across the Atlantic in the the nineteenth century um, to North America and Canada. Some go down to the Black Sea, um, and from North America, there have been further waves of migration to um, to South America. I mentioned, you know, Paraguay, Belize, Mexico, and there have been missions in India. Uh, and now, the, actually, the greatest concentration of Mennonites is in the global South, in Africa. Um, there are churches in Korea, um, in Indonesia. So, so now there are, there are yeah, there are Mennonites wow. everywhere now. Um, uh, the biggest concentration actually is now in, in the global south, though the most kind of uh, famous place now where they are is North America. Um, and, you know, that's why, as I say, when I say to people, oh, I work on people who are like the Amish, they're actually kind of close cousins because they both come from Anabaptist, the Amish, and, and the Amish are like a 
like a split off of Mennonites, basically, is we think of North America. So we think of communities like Amish or Old Order Mennonites who you know live traditional lives um, there. There aren't any Mennonites now in Poland at all. Um, and they uh, not all of them go to Russia, to, to the Russian Empire in the, in the 18th century. Quite a lot stay. Um, many of those communities actually end up fighting for, for Germany in the World Wars. Um, but after the Second World War, those the churches are destroyed, people are dispersed. I mean, obviously, you can imagine it's a quite kind of problematic position for uh, community, you know, the German-speaking community is still in post-war Poland um, at a time when, um, you know, they, they, they may have moved as well um, um, and the question of kind of statelessness. So there are no Mennonites now in, in Poland, but there are material remnants of their, their lives. Um, kind of a really interesting research trip I did a couple of years ago as I spent you know the four or five days before Christmas as one does driving <laughs> around the Polish countryside and the northern Polish countryside, countryside looking for cemeteries um, of Mennonites because there are still lots of Mennonite cemeteries um, and you know it's very cold very snowy got stuck a few times but I found the cemeteries that I wanted to <laughs> and those, those are really interesting because they they have they have been looked off well but they fell into kind of ruin and disrepair but they are now being restored and Mennonites often come over from North America um, they're looking for their ancestors and so they're this kind of really interesting space so yeah there's lots of Mennonites if you want to find them and there are lots of kind of traces of their um, their lives across places they've moved as well. I think Charlie you and I you know you could fly over and we're going to go and have a little bit of tour of uh, northern yeah. Poland oh, and Kat's, like gonna, Kat's gonna give us a nice little list of where we yeah. should go can you get the good crook neck <laughs> whatever that's, that's you like what whatever you like gosh it's really interesting to hear that you know that so much has survived from these communities what would you say is their contemporary legacy today I mean I think they they offer still that their survival offers a really interesting kind of alternative narrative to the survival of, of faith because they're still really, you know, they're, they're kind of really strong numerically. There are, you know, there are lots of Mennonites and there are lots of communities, as say, particularly in North South America and the global South. Um, and not all, as I say, but many of them live still these very traditional lives. I mean, they, some of them still only speak to each other in low German dialects they wear traditional dress and if we tend you know we think of this you know ourselves in a world of you know secularization and of you know decline of, of, of faith perhaps in the western world particularly um, and yet you have these these communities which have survived and not just survived but actually you know are still moving migrating um, and yet they're also different to the, the you know they're not part of the kind of um, the mainstream evangelical faith of of the US either. They are their own distinct thing. So I think they're a really interesting legacy of the power of a kind of confessional diaspora, um, one which is still very powerfully connected between communities. You know, they they have their own very strong sense of their genealogy and of their history. That can be deeply problematic as well. Um, you know, this kind of looking back to a European, mm. um, often white past, um, and that 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 problem yeah. is um, is you know it, it which many men like themselves are aware of. 
so it raises for me all sorts of really interesting questions about belonging and faith um, and the, the nature of community um, in the modern world. You've got a really interesting project coming up, haven't you? Tell yeah. us about it. Tell us. What are you doing? Um, yeah, so this is a five-year project funded by the Labour Hume. Um, and the idea is to go well beyond my early modern origins. Um, and this, this project is kind of called Global Faiths. And it's looking at these long-term questions of the survival, the development, the migration of not just Mennonite, but also their cousins, the Amish and the Hutterites, who I said, as I say, all go back to Anabaptism in the 16th century. Their, their migrations, their dispersion, their survival, the development of their faith. So I will be hiring three postdocs and two PhDs onto that project um, next year. Um, and yeah, the big question for us is to think about exactly this question of how a dispersed community one that often has moved migrated has you know not been tolerated has grown into a very distinct kind of element of, of, of a global faith um how it's spread into the global south what its material legacy is what the archives look like for studying something like that and how that really thinks helps us think about big questions of um diaspora what migration means what's you know, what does secularization mean when you've got a church like this? And how do, um, I think the biggest question for me that I'm really interested in is how we can think about kind of experience at the local community congregation level in these, in big global landscapes and timeframes. Um, Cause it always comes back to me for, to me for, for those kind of questions of individual experience, community experience. So yeah, it should be quite exciting, I hope. <laughs> That is, that sounds so exciting. So for anyone who wants to follow your progress on this, where can we follow you on social media and keep an eye on what you're up to? Um, so you can follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at Catrician H um, is my Twitter handle um, on my website, um, cathill.co.uk. Um, and I'll, I, you know, as you say, so if I'm not posting nature photos, then I'll be <laughs> You're worth, worth following even just for the nature photos. <laughs> Do you, do you promise you'll come back and, and talk to us again once you're properly into all this research? I, yeah, I definitely will, of course. Yeah, it's been a, been really fun to talk about it. So it'd be really exciting to kind of update you when I've done a bit more bit more travelling and a bit more research. <laughs> we, we cannot wait to hear back from you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cat Hill. Yeah, thanks so much for a really, really interesting conversation. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. 
And here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.